I'm Brian Lowry, a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And this is Leadership for Society, a series of conversations that focuses on the most pressing issues of today. This fall, we're talking about race and power. Today, we're focusing on the role of policy in creating a just and equitable society. We have the great pleasure of speaking with Angela Glover Blackwell, the founder and CEO of PolicyLink. PolicyLink advocates for policy changes that enable everyone, especially people of color, to be economically secure and benefit from a just society. You're listening to Leadership for Society, Race and Power, the podcast. Um, well, thanks for joining us. It is my pleasure to introduce Angela Glover Blackwell, the founder and residence of PolicyLink. Thanks for joining us, Angela. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I just want to start out by understanding a little bit about PolicyLink. So can you describe for us what PolicyLink is um, and also why you started it? PolicyLink is a research and action institute advancing racial and economic equity. I started PolicyLink 21, 22 years ago. And the purpose was to be able to influence policy from the wisdom, voice, and experience of people who were working for change in their local communities. There are a lot of national policy groups out there, but most of them are based in DC and they work with the rhythm and the style of policy in DC. My experience doing a bunch of other things before I started PolicyLink was that people in local communities, organizers, residents, service providers, people in local government are very creative when it comes up to solving problems. But the world of national policy gets done at some distance from them. I really thought that local leaders are national leaders. They're solving the nation's problems. And we ought to be doing policy from their point of view. That's why I started it. How political is your work on policy? Well, policy and politics really go together because good ideas that develop into good policy initiatives aren't going to get put in place if you don't get the politics of how change happens. You've got to convince the people who have the power that this is what needs to happen. And just having an elegant policy idea is not going to necessarily move it forward. Too often, uh, it's the lobbyists who are moving things in D.C. And we actually think that that same organizing that works in local communities is important at the national level which is one of the reasons, just to just jump right into the moment, Black Lives Matter organizing has done more to push forward conversations about police and reparations and work and housing than all of the elegant policy ideas coming out of those think tanks. People who deal with racial equity are really understanding that you have to put it all together. We need the data. We need the policy development. We need the politics. We need the people who sit in the halls of power, but we also need the people on the ground who understand their issues to be in it and stay in it. Um, you, you use the word equity. So I'm curious, how do you distinguish between equity and equality? That's come up quite a bit in the um, sessions we've had thus far. I'd love to hear you talk about the difference. With equality, like just take education that when people talk about equality in education, I think what they have in mind is that children ought to go to school for the same amount of time, use books with the same kind of curriculum, have teachers with the same training, and hope and wish for equal outcomes. What equity asks is what's the outcome? We want all children to achieve at high levels, graduate and go on to reach their full potential. 
Once you know what that outcome is and you say all children, you then back into what the inputs have to be. So equity really focuses on the difference between where you are and where you want to be without getting so caught in equality that you might miss the equity goal altogether. But you think about those same children, some children who live in communities that have suffered from underinvestment don't have the kind of things that upper class communities have in terms of parks and stimulating activities and parents that can connect them both by money and networks to everything they need. If that's what's needed to reach your full potential and some children don't have it, then the government needs to ask, how do we make sure they get it? So I think that the equity discussion really takes the civil rights movement to the next level. Are we ready for that? Because here's what you're saying. Here's what I hear. Um, there, there are inequities in the society. I don't think anyone, uh, any reasonable person can look around in this country and not see that. So let's just take that as a given. And it's the role of the society or the government to address those. And to do that, what that means is providing um, more for some than others, because some people need more to achieve their full potential. And it's the, it's the role of the society and via the government, as what I assume you're saying, to provide that kind of possibility. Are we ready for that? You know, 20 years ago when we started PolicyLink, nobody was ready for it. I can't tell you the amount of pushback that we got. We got it from philanthropy. We got it from business. We got it from government. We got it from academics. We even got it from peers who wanted to know, well, what do we need new language for? We haven't achieved equal opportunity. Let's focus on that. Mm -hmm. um, what's happened in the past 20 years is pretty astonishing. What's happened in the past 20 weeks is pretty astonishing. That we have gotten to a point in this country where a lot of the leadership from all those quarters is actually calling for, ready for, trying to lean into and figure out how to be part of the equity movement. And they're talking about it in exactly that way. Um, what has happened is that people are starting to understand that the fate of the nation is dependent on getting equity right. I'll tell you what I mean. As we become a nation in which the majority of the people of color by 2044, that's actually after the fact, because by 2030, the majority of the young workforce will be of color. This year, the majority of all children 18 or under are now of color, black, indigenous, Latinx, Asian, mixed. What that means is that the fate of the nation is dependent on the very people who have been disproportionately left behind. This country has really been known for its vast, stable, and growing middle class. If people of color don't become the middle class, there will be no vast, stable, and growing middle class. And so while when we were talking about equity is the right thing to do, you attract a certain number of people who are attracted to every movement that is the right thing to do. And maybe you get a few more when you put a different spin on it. But when you think about where we are now, it's an imperative. It's a democratic imperative. It is an economic imperative. It is a national imperative. And I am here to tell you that business leaders, government leaders, philanthropic leaders, civic leaders get it. And I can't find enough time in the day to talk to all the people who will suddenly want to know about racial equity and how to get some. Okay. I'm going to tell you right now, I love the optimism and energy. I don't, I'm not sure I'm convinced yet, but I, I, I love it. Let's, I want to come back to that, but let me go into some local things for a bit. Um, 
So we have a number, as always, propositions on the ballot in California because we do um, direct referendum, right? Popular referendum. And I'm curious to hear your thinking about two in particular. So I'd love for you to give a quick um, description of Proposition 16 that's on the ballot and tell us where your organization is on that, on that, on that proposition. Uh, Policy Link has actually put out a voter's guide on some of these and they are for, and I am for 16. 16 actually allows for us to be able to undo the discrimination that is taking place by putting back in place things like affirmative action that actually allow for taking race into account as we're looking at higher education, as we're looking at contracting opportunities, we're looking at decision-making. We actually some time ago made a big mistake in California when we pulled back on affirmative action and we're suffering for it. If you think about it, think about California after World War II. California after World War II was a place where you had all of these immigrants who were coming to California. They were, they were undereducated, they were not healthy, they didn't have, a lot, didn't have a lot going for them. They were white. And California invested in these white people who had little education, deep poverty, not that much in way of health, had high infant mortality rates. They invested in the people who were here. And California ended up by 1962 being on the front cover of Newsweek magazine, booming, bustling California, the nation's number one state with an educational system, a healthcare system, an infrastructure unrivaled in the nation. They took what they had and they invested in it and they got great results. As people began to age and the population began to change a little bit, we pulled back and we stopped being aggressive about reaching out and making sure that the people who were coming in to be the next one would have the investment they need. And so California's got to step into the moment. It'll be glad that it did when it doesn't, but we're having to bring them kicking and screaming. Okay, yeah, so this is really about uh, repealing Prop 209, the original proposition that repealed affirmative action, right? So, and so, and what about Proposition 22? This one is, a little, I think, probably more complicated for you as well. So Proposition 22, can you describe the basics of that proposition for us? 22 is complicated. We have, through technology, changed the nature of work in the economy. Um, the economy actually doesn't provide the kind of safeguards of employment that it once did. You know, I know when I was a girl, people got a job and they kept that job and they retired from that job. It's way different now. People have the difficult time making ends meet. Low wage work, entry level jobs, frontline workers, they don't make enough to really support a family, particularly not in areas like the Bay Area and Los Angeles and areas of California that are expensive, but it hardly supports you anywhere. And so at the same time that the economy had changed, uh, kind of pulling out so many of the safeguards that people had depended on, we had some opportunities emerge through this app-based work, Uber, Lyft, things like that. And what, they, what these things actually do is they make money off of people's labor, but don't employ them as employees. They are totally dependent on their labor totally dependent on people driving their cars, but don't employ them as employees. They are able to bypass our labor laws and say they're contracting with people. We had um, Prop 5, I guess it was, or that actually 
said that you had to treat these people who were employed through these app-based jobs as employees with all the benefits of employment. 22 snatches that away. 22 snatches that away. And I'm sure the public is confused because you see all these people on the television commercials about 22 saying, don't take my job away. It's my extra job. I've got one job and I just do this on the side. I'm a student and I'm just doing this to make a little spending change. Well, a whole lot of people in California are doing it to make a living, to support their families. They want to work more hours. They want to work steady hours. They want to have benefits. They want to be able to have those things that come with secure employment. And that is why we uh, think that we need to vote no on 22. We need to keep the labor laws applying to these app-based businesses. And no on 22 does that. Mm -hmm. So it's, what's interesting about this one is you have a number of organizations that I think would agree with you on many things, right? So you have, I think it's last I looked, maybe 10 chapters of the NAACP, um, national Asian American organizations, and a number of others that are interested in racial justice that are yes on 22. So I, I wonder, like, how do you, what do you think about that? How do you make sense of that? Because again, I assume that you agree in terms of the goals that these organizations are trying to uh, achieve, but there's differences in how you all are reading this proposition. What, what do you make of that? I am not sure that all of the organizations that are saying that you should be yes on 22 fully understand that the exceptions are driving a lot of that chatter about, I just want to be able to do this on the side. Many people who say, I just want to do it on the side, have not allowed themselves to envision work as it ought to be. That mm. you could make this your work if you had regular hours that you could depend on. And if you made it your work and you had health benefits and you had time off and you had family leave, you could really be making a living. We have gotten so sucked in to these jobs that you have to have three or four of them to be able to piece together a living wage. People have just gotten so into that they're afraid to give up one of those pieces as opposed to fighting to make a piece what could be your whole job. And so we have a, a culture that has just gotten accepting of an economy that does not work. We need to fight against that. Yeah, I, I see that. And I also see a, an, an interesting distinction between the people who would be a yes and a no here, right? So there are people who would be focused on the immediate jobs, right? They might not be great, but I need something, right? I, I, I hear what you're saying. I can, I can I agree with you, but I got to eat today. And today, this is providing me enough to get something to eat, right? And what you're talking about, I think, is a longer term kind of, I mean, a labor movement, a focus on the relationship between labor and capital. Like, what kind of society do we want? But if I were going to be on the other side of that, I would say, like, it's a little paternalistic for us to tell people what they should want or need. If they want this job and they need this job, we should have those options available to them. And to take them away is, you know, this is how people push against the liberal position, right? It's a paternalistic approach to people's lives, right? We're just telling them what's best for them. And if you get on board with what we're selling, your life is gonna be better, but in the short term, it might hurt a little bit, but it's good for you. Is how, yeah, how do you think about that? I think it is the job of government 
to be able to put together systems in which people can live their lives. And those systems have to be guided by some principles. And when you're talking about principles, there are going to be some people who don't want to be bothered with that. They want to live on the outside of that. But what government has to do is it has to look at the overall picture. It has to say, these are the things that are going to guide our role in terms of governance and governing in terms of policy and strategy. And I think that we need to get back in that business when it comes to our economy. Our economy is failing the American people. And you don't have to talk to, you don't have to go too far, you don't have to talk to too many people before you will get reinforcement for that. There are people who have no security, no security about their housing, no security about food, no security about their health. And the economy is just moving in a direction that it is failing people. We need to begin to think about how do we get this economy working again? How do we get the people who are making the big bucks? How do we get the companies that represent the future to understand this isn't just about how much wealth you can extract, but how do we build a system that is sustainable going forward? And in building that system, there are going to be some people who are going to fall on the outside of it in terms of what they want. But we can't create a system that allows for the people who want something slightly different to be able to control what it is in terms of standards and principles that we're applying as we try to govern through policy. I hear you. And I, I'm going to now push back on your optimism because <laughs> I, I like it, but it's, I'm, I'm not completely convinced yet. So the economy is developing, as you pointed out, the gig economy has, uh, you know, exploded over the last, I don't know, whatever, it's five, 10 years. Um, there's a, now there's some thinking that we're moving toward automation, like um, self-driving cars, which will concentrate presumably capital in even fewer hands because they won't even need the drivers. And you're talking about creating a fair system. This is a large thing to address, right? How do you think about changing the whole system, right? So and the reason I'm bringing this up is you talk about the difference between revolution and evolution. Like, I, tell me what this revolution looks like. Well, we really, this is an extraordinary moment that we're in right now. And you're right in seeing my optimism, but I also am not naive. I know that this moment could pass without any measurable change happening. And so I think it is up to those of us who see a way forward to figure out how to stretch this moment into a movement that leads to something transformative. And it will be good for vast numbers of people because what the people who have been disproportionately left behind need is for the system to work. They'd like, I can just take one system after another, take education. Anybody who looks at the education data knows that our education system on a whole is failing. It doesn't mean it's failing everybody in it. But on a whole, it doesn't look good when you compare it with other countries and you think about what it is that we need. Some people are doing very well within it. And so we could just keep focusing on the people who are able to benefit from the schools that are good and keep improving their schools so that they will go on and be very good. Or we could focus on those who are in the schools that are getting the least, that aren't performing at all. And I feel quite confident that if we focus on those that with the least and we fix the system from there forward, everybody will benefit because what those children need is a 21st century education and they need it now. What they need is a system that's anticipating the workforce of the future and they need to be ready for that now. They need to be able to unleash their extraordinary potential because they are the future. Let's talk about police. 
uh, that's another system that is broken. And when I say it's not working, I mean it's not creating safety because the sad truth is that the systems are doing actually what they were developed to do, control and contain. Control and contain the people who are poor, the people who have not, and protect private property and people who have. They actually are doing that pretty well, but there's so many people who they're trying to control and contain. There's such vastness in terms of the people who are being left behind that it's just not working anymore, even for those goals. And it's certainly not working for the people who want their communities to be safe. Now, we need to fix it and we need to fix it now. I don't think that we're gonna fix it with minor reform. We have been, I actually started working on police reform when I was at Public Advocates in 1977. That's more years than I can add up just like that. <laughs> it's a long time that I have been working on police reform and I've tried community policing, I've tried training, tried all kinds of things and it hasn't worked. We need to do something transformative with the police. And so when I talk about the need for revolution, what I am really saying is we need to have a different North Star in terms of where we're trying to go. And we need to have a well-funded, radically imagined policy strategy approach to getting what we need. And I really don't think that this is the time for small incremental change. This is the time to take advantage of a shift in the mindset of the American people to be able to put out some big ideas and see where we land. Mm -hmm. And so when you talked about both um, education and policing, what struck me is they both seem not to work. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm con compelled by that argument, but they serve the interests of the powerful pretty well. Like that, that's what's implied, right? You didn't use that language exactly, but I think that's what you're saying. And so when we go back and we say, what's the relationship between policy and politics, right? If we think politics is the practice of power to some extent, like how do we, who gets to make the decisions and whose interests? And we see these things that we think are fundamentally broken, but not for the powerful. This is where I just want to be clear. That's where my concern of pessimism comes in, right? How, help, me get, help me get on board with your enthusiasm, with your optimism about that. I think that you're realistic when you point out that we have to overcome the power that has put in place what we have. But what we know is the power really is with the people, when they embrace it, when they use it, when they act on it. That even when we use politics to get people in place who we think share our uh, worldview, they don't produce what we want if the people don't demand it and keep demanding it. We have had times when we have had people in office and they have disappointed us because we have disappointed ourselves. We have let them disappoint us. We sometimes think that when we elect somebody who's of our mindset, we can just sit back and go play pool. We can't, we gotta stay active. We have to keep organizing. We have to keep an eye on them. And so we've got to have the good ideas. We have to have the North Star. We have to have the politicians. We have to have an organized community. We have to measure progress and change and we have to hold the system accountable. I hear you on all, on all this and I'm on board with that. And I just wonder like right now, so as if we have the presidential election coming up and um, Biden, who I assume is like more aligned with what your, your interests than, than Trump would be. Um, he still is very tentative on some of the things that you talk about as revolution, right? I would, and this is my reading, I'll just say this is my reading. 
right? That he is trying to get elected, that he is um, on, on policing, for example, you brought up the policing, he's, he's tentative on, on police reforms for reasons that I think are understandable, whether we agree with them or not, but you understand why he would be, I assume. Like, how do you create revolution in this context? Well, you know, I think that one of the ways is to be comfortable with your role. Um, I have never been in elected office. I've never been on the school board or the city council or anything. I can't tell you how many times I've been approached by it. And I have always said no, because I want to do what I do. And what I do is try to tell the truth, try to understand the truth deeply try to think about what would make a difference, not what can we get, not what's going to be popular, but what would make a difference. And once I can identify that, and I don't do that sitting in a room alone, I do that in constant contact and dialogue and working on the ground with people and looking at what they're doing. I then try to be an advocate for those things that move as close to that as possible. And if they're not close, at least they're not moving backwards. They're moving in the right direction. And I don't want to ever be confused about that. I just don't know how I could go from the role that I have played for over 50 years to being an elected official in there doing the compromising that would have to be done. I want good people to be there. And I know that they're not going to do everything I want them to do. But that's not going to keep me from saying what needs to happen. It's not going to keep me from calling them out when they don't do it. It's not going to keep me from pushing them when they don't quite get there. And so I do think, in answer to your question, that we're not clear enough about the roles that have to be played for the change that happens. Too often we see that we'll see somebody who's really good and pushing hard in a, in a corporation, making change in that corporation, and we pull them out and put them in a foundation. You know, we don't have a good sense of what kind of person it takes to be able to be in these different entities and push to go forward. People need to know their lane. That's what you're saying. They need to play their position. <laughs> play it, but really play it. Not just play act, not act it out, really play it. Okay, all right. <laughs> More recently in your writings, you said at one point that quote, privileges must be abandoned. But when you start talking about closing gaps, right? And this is what you're talking about when you talk about equity. So it brings back to where we started at the beginning, right? You're not talking about lifting all boats. You're called talking about closing the gaps and the ability to flourish, right? That society should make it a possible for everyone to flourish and it's not happening right now. So there are gaps that need to be closed. I'd be surprised if privileges must be abandoned is gonna be a huge applause line. Like how do you think about moving now to this true equity focused um, approach? Yes, when you live in a society such as ours that's become really imbalanced, you are not going to be able to tell people that no one's going to have to change, that nobody's going to have to give up. You know, we are not a poor country and we need to stop acting like one. Uh, wealthiest country on the face of the earth, and yet we talk about austerity. We allow children to go to schools that are horrible, people to live in terrible conditions, homelessness all around. We're not a poor country and we need to stop acting like one. But there's another way that privilege gets used, that people talk about white privilege and they talk about understanding that people who move through this society as white people have privileges that people who are black and Latinx and others don't have. I think we need to be a little more thoughtful 
about that discussion because I actually think a lot of what we call privilege in that discussion is not privilege at all, it's race discrimination. And if you think about it, if you are able, if you're white and you are able to walk through a store where you intend to buy something and you are not followed, and somebody who is black comes in money in her pocket and she plans to buy something, but she is followed. The fact that you are not followed is not a privilege. The fact that that person is followed is race-based discrimination. And we shouldn't be dressing it up as privilege. We need to talk about it as what it is. So we need to get clear in this privilege discussion about the discrimination that is happening in society. And we all need to make sure that we get rid of that discrimination. We're not getting rid of privilege. We are getting rid of the discrimination. Yeah, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a little bit because I do some research on this one. And this is like, it's not marketing. There's a, psych there's a psychology um, a psychological phenomenon here that it's, I think is important. So the reason I think you should talk about white privilege is because when you talk about just discrimination, which I don't, just as you described it, I don't disagree at all, completely agree with everything you said. When you only talk about it in terms of discrimination, it allows white folks to feel like we should, we should fix that for them. Like that is not fair that they are being treated that way, but it, there's no self-implication. So the value of talking about privilege is to say that this is a system that we all participate in and it's not possible for this system to affect just one person. If there is, if there is race-based discrimination against black folks, against Latinx folks, then that must mean you're implicated. That doesn't mean you did it. That doesn't mean you're responsible for creating it. That means you are a participant in it in some way and it affects you and you have a moral responsibility in that sense to engage in trying to fix that. Because if you don't have the sense that I'm engaged in it, that I'm involved in it, that I'm implicated in it, then there's no real moral obligation to fix it. There might be, you might see it as a charitable thing to do. You know, it might feel good to help someone else, but you feel less psychologically on the hook than you do if you think of it as like, I am in some way benefiting from this inequitable system. So that's, I would push in. So I would, so it's not that I, um, I think we shouldn't talk about discrimination. I think we should, I don't think we should hide that. But I also think we have to have some way of describing what it means to be in a high power position in an inequitable system. I agree with you that people need to understand that they are complicit in what is going on. And I'm not sure that privilege suggests complicity. And I suspect that if people think that they're having to give up their privilege, it seems to me it might be harder to draw them in. Um, and so, but I do think that people have to understand that this hurts everybody. And when we look at the people who are really wealthy, when we look at the 50 people who have the wealth of nations, when we look at how much wealth that some people have, they need to give some of that up, but they'll still flourish. They may do better. You know, we are not talking about putting them homeless. We're just talking about how much do you really need? Some people really need to pay more taxes. You know, we've got Prop 15 on the ballot where we're trying to talk about for the money that we need for schools, we need to be taxing commercial property and not uh, putting all the burden on residential property. But even in doing that, there is concern about small business people. Uh, businesses three million or more are exempt. And uh, only 10% of the wealthiest business would be paying 92% of the new revenue. So, you know, there is a way to do this thoughtfully. But yeah, somebody has to give something up. But the people we're asking to give up, they have too much. 
One more question for you. What's your superpower? Ooh. <laughs> 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 play, right? <laughs> um, listening. I really do think that I um, am often able to hear what people say and hear beneath what they say. And it allows me to be able to translate what it is that they're wanting and make a connection. I think if I have a superpower, it is the ability to really listen. I try. I, I love that because it was a pleasure to listen to you. Okay. So I, I love that superpower. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really, really appreciate it. It was great. Thank you. It was my pleasure. After my discussion with Angela Glover Blackwell, I was curious what my students had made of it. So I checked in with Danielle. Here's what she had to say. Angela really captured like the energy and vigor and hope and transformation is something I like. I really appreciated her way of like trying to figure out what's the best way to translate some of these messages to a larger society to get her voice heard. I had never really thought about like what does it mean to be someone in policy or or like community organizing and what's the impact of like taking folks away from that and putting them in a different role or uh, and yeah I I guess I never really thought there was an argument for like staying in your lane <laughs> in some ways and she convinced me other way and so like I was just really like I always love when my ideas are, like when there's something new <laughs> that I didn't realize that I got out of that and that was probably like those two things were what really what I'll take and try to figure out like what is my role in society within this movement and like maybe I don't do a little bit of everything maybe there's a way to have the best impact based on who I am and what I have to offer and I'm curious what that looks like for me to explore. You've been listening to Leadership for Society, Race and Power, the podcast series. This show is produced by Stanford Graduate School of Business, and our theme music is composed by Belief. For more episodes in this series, make sure to subscribe to the Leadership for Society podcast. <laughs>